Or as Ben mentioned, we are going to be in Isaiah 9, verses, we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and then I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to see what the, what the Word has to say. Um, so again, while you're getting there, Isaiah 9, um, you mind just hitting the lights real quick so everybody can see what we're reading? All right, I think that's better. Uh, so, let's pick up in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time to gather together. Thank you for leaving us the church. Thank you for leaving us your word, for leaving us prayer that we can communicate with you. Father, I thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your humility, being willing to come as we are rejecting you and be born, humble yourself, so that you could conquer sin and death and offer us a path to salvation. Pray this morning that our hearts would soar with hope, that our hearts would soar with praise for you. And I pray as we leave, Lord, that we'll be encouraged and that the next four or five days, that we will not only think about all of the, the physical things we enjoy with Christmas, but our hearts, Lord, will be thankful and overwhelmed with your grace and your mercy. In your name, amen. So this is one of the most encouraging passages um, in the Bible. And if you're ever discouraged, it's a great place to come and, and just read. So um, as I mentioned, this Friday is uh, Christmas. So you only have three or four more shopping days to get what you need for the special someone on your list. So um, I'm sure I'm in the top five of that special someone on your list. Uh, so it is Christmas. And regardless of how old you are, or even if you believe that, um, the, that God did come to earth as a baby to save you, um, you've probably celebrated Christmas your whole life. And in fact, people have been celebrating Christmas for 2,000 years. And even before Christ came, people were looking forward to celebrating a Savior coming. And so how do we keep the magic of Christmas alive if we've been celebrating it for a long time? And we celebrate lots of things. We celebrate the 4th of July. We celebrate Labor Day, Thanksgiving, 
Uh, and so there are a lot of things we celebrate, but none of those are even 500 years old. And so um, there must be something kind of different and special about Jesus because there are, there are other people in history that people still know about. I mean, if you look at Aristotle and Socrates and some of these other great thinkers of antiquity, people still read them and they study what they had to say, but they don't celebrate their birthday or their death. Um, not in mass anyway. Maybe you do if you're a weirdo or something, but, but we don't celebrate it in mass, right? So um, by the way, if you'd like to study philosophy, or I didn't call you a weirdo, not explicitly anyway. Um, so there is something different and something special about Jesus. And I, I be, part of what I think makes it difficult sometimes to really dwell and, and, and be excited about it is it, it's abstract. And so things that are abstract are difficult to understand, and sometimes they take a lot of time to internalize. And so, in a way, um, what happened with Jesus is extremely simple. I mean, a young woman gets pregnant, she gives birth to a son. This happens thousands of times every day. It happens millions of times a year, especially at TCC. It happens a lot. Um, so, but, it, but there is something extraordinary about this because it's not just a, a man, it's not just a baby that's born, but it's the creator of the universe. And if you look in John 1, 1 through 18, you see this language of the word, meaning Jesus, being um, God, and that he was the one that created the universe and that all things were made by him, including us, that he was life and that he gives life to men, and that we, the light that we can have and hold on to, the hope that we can have as human beings, is this Christ, um, is this one who had sovereign power and yet humbled himself. And so I think another reason it's difficult sometimes to, to maybe believe or keep our excitement alive is everything we see in life about those in power and how they act is, is in almost always contradictory um, especially those who have absolute power, contradictory to what we see here with Christ. And when I think of, when I think of a place where there's, there's sovereign power consolidated in the hands of one person, um, the first place that comes to mind is North Korea. And um, the leader of North Korea is um, Kim Jong-un, and I think I have a picture of North Korea behind us. So this is a satellite picture of North Korea at night. The bottom part that's all lit up, that's South Korea. And the top part that's lit, that's China. The dark part in the middle, that's North Korea, except for the one dot. That's the capital city where Kim Jong-un lives. But the rest of the city, the rest of the country, they have no electricity. It's very poor. And in fact, it's so poor there are rumors of cannibalism there because there aren't, there's not enough food for people to, to live and have a life in North Korea. And the reason is um, Kim Jong-un, he exploits the people. He takes advantage of them. He hoards all of the resources for himself. And so um, instead of protecting and providing peace for his people, he does the opposite. And if you think about history, down through history, a lot of sovereign leaders who have had power consolidated all in their hands, they, they don't help their people. They take advantage of their people. It's the exact opposite. Um, and this has been going on in, in North Korea for a long time. Um, his dad before him, there were, you know, I remember reading an article before he, Kim Jong-il, his dad died, that every night he would binge on steak and lobster while people are, are essentially dying of starvation there. And so we see the exact opposite of, of that with Christ. He has the power of, of life in his hand. Literally, the, the scripture says 
He can speak a word and, and um, you know, you would be dead. The power of life and death is literally in his hands. He rules over the sovereign universe, yet he humbles himself and, come and submit, comes to submit himself um, so that we would reject him and that he could, he could um, be killed and then rise from the dead to conquer sin and death. And so um, I think those things make it hard for us sometimes to, to, to you know, have the excitement that we should around Christmas. So this passage is extremely helpful, though. As I mentioned, it's really encouraging. And there are three main things we're going to see in this passage. Um, so we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, and we'll see hope and relief. And then in verse 6, we'll see the Savior. And in verse 7, we'll see eternity enjoyed. And when you think about hope and relief, um, hope is one thing, but hope and relief together. Relief implies that there's, there's some, something going on that's not good, maybe a struggle, maybe oppression, but something needs to be relieved. And so um, the Israelites are in a bad spot. They've been conquered. They've, they have a history of turning their back on God and worshiping other things. Um, so they're, they're, they're oppressed. They're poor. They don't have any, um, they don't have any political power. Um, and a lot of them have been displaced so when they were conquered, their land was reorganized, families were split up. It's a dark, dark time for them. And so for hope and relief to come in, um, this would be a welcome message. And as you'll see, there, it is a message for them, but it's also a message for just greater mankind and our need to the hope and relief we need to be relieved from sin. So the, the one thing that's missed a little bit in the English language here is this is written originally um, John Mackey in his commentary talks about how this is written in the prophetic perfect tense. And basically, that's a tense that existed in the Hebrew language that we don't have here in the English language. And the prophetic perfect tense means that something is being said about the future, which is what's happening here. This is Isaiah. This message comes to Isaiah, you know, more than 700 years before Christ is actually even born. But because God is sovereign, it's written as if it's history, as if it's already happened, okay? So this is not just, um, you know, somebody guaranteeing a victory of a game before the game happens. This is God being sovereign, him orchestrating history according to his perfect will. And so when he tells Isaiah this has been done, it's so confident that it will be done that it's written as if it's past tense, okay? So it's an important thing to keep in mind um, because God is incapable of lying, he's incapable of sin, and he's sovereign. So those things together means when he says he's going to do something, it will happen. There, it, there, it is impossible for it to not happen. So I'm going to read the verses, and I want to kind of go through them one by one. We're going to concentrate on verse 6. We'll spend more time there than any of the other verses, um, because we, that's where we see kind of the culmination of the hope breaking in, and then we're going to just, I'm going to mainly just read verse 7 because it kind of ties everything together that's happened. So um, verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So it starts off the very first sentence. These people are living in anguish. And Alex Mortar in his commentary said, that word anguish implies they're living in fear. 
So they're living um, essentially, maybe not necessarily afraid for their lives, but they're not in control of their own situation. And they're, they're being oppressed. The Assyrians have come in. Uh, this message was given to Isaiah between 1734 and 1732, which is after the time that the Assyrians had come in and conquered them. Um, so again, they're being ruled by somebody else. They're being oppressed. And um, this is pretty common in, in Israel's history. If you see, if you look at their history, they're, they're pretty regularly turning their back on God, and then people are coming and um, conquering them. And it even started way back in the land of Egypt. So they, had, they, were, they were in Egypt for over 400 years. They were slaves. They were treated harshly. They were forced to work in hard conditions. They had no freedoms. Um, and, and so you see this language of oppression. Um, and so they, you know, a lot of them, again, as I mentioned, um, are, are, have potentially been moved from where they wanted to live forcefully. Their families have been split up. And this is, this is parallel to us as humans. So we're born into sin. We're born into death. We're born under the curse of sin. And we don't have any power to get out of it. So similarly to the, to the Israelites, they didn't have any power to resist what the Assyrians were doing. We don't have any power, and we need hope to come through. And so they will get hope. As you'll see, if you read on later, Hezekiah will be born, and they will, they'll be reestablished to some extent as a nation. But the broader message of this passage is this is hope that's coming for all of mankind. And if you look at the end of the verse, it says, um, Galilee of the nations. And Mortar in his commentary says, this is the first glimpse that we begin to see of going beyond Israel, that this message is for everyone. So Galilee of the nations implies more than just one nation, more than just the nation Israel. So now he's talking to, God's going to open up his salvation. He's going to open up his hope to everyone. So if we go on in verse 2, we kind of see where they are. So the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. So, again, when you see something in Scripture that's repeated, um, that's intentional. It's not an accident, and it's there. It's meant to um, provide emphasis. So he says, the, those who dwelt in darkness, and then he says, or who walked in darkness and who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. It's, it implies this... Um, total pitch black. You cannot see anything. There are no land markers. There's no moon. There's no stars. It is, it is complete darkness, and you're just groping around aimlessly. And so there's a sense of kind of utter hopelessness and desperation. But then you see um, a great light um, has shined on them. And when you think about light and darkness, those are two things that are opposites that cannot exist together. So when light comes in, it consumes the darkness. The darkness has to flee. It has to go away. And darkness has no power over light. So as long as there's a light existing, there's not some you know, force of darkness that can come in and overtake it. The light has to go out, and then essentially the darkness returns. So these people are, are hopeless. They, they, have, they cannot see anything. They're lost. But suddenly, a bright light is going to bust in on them. Um, and as we get to verse 3, you'll see that the hope and the, and the joy and the um, 
just future expectation, just the positive language really starts to pick up. So in verse 3, it says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So this, again, is overwhelmingly positive because you see this idea of increase and multiplication of the nation, so of numbers, of joy. There's this idea of increasing of wealth. And when I say wealth, I'm not talking everybody's living like Donald Trump, but this idea of, of peace and, and joy and essentially um, not having to worry about anything. And so it's, it's that kind of eternal peace that Christ provides. Um, and and Mackey in his commentary connects that first sentence, you have multiplied the nation with when God appears to Abraham in Genesis. And remember, Abraham is an old man. He's almost 100. His wife is, is getting close to 90. And, and he's been told he's going to be a great nation. Um, but he doesn't have, he's never been able to have kids. And so how's he going to turn into a great nation if he can't have kids? And God takes him outside and he shows him the sky and he says, count the stars, um, to which Abraham, you know, can't. And the idea that God's communicating to Abraham is, I'm going to increase you. I know you don't have children and you can only see what's right in front of you. I'm going to increase you into such a great nation that it will completely outstrip any, any idea that you would have. It's going, to be, it's going to be multiplied so far beyond what you can imagine. And of course, God does give him a son basically at the age of 100 and his wife at the age of 90. And then from them, you know, a whole nation of Israelites come. And it's that same kind of idea that this, this kind of multiplication of, of joy and peace and wealth is going to be so far beyond what you can ever imagine because you're going to be literally dwelling with the living God. Um, and so when you look down and you read a couple things, there are a couple of things I want to highlight. It says, with that joy, as with joy at the harvest. Now, most of us are not farmers anymore. And so this idea is kind of hard to maybe, you know, think about because, you know, generally now um, we're, we're a more developed society where things, people have jobs outside of farming and get paychecks. But when you're a farmer, you don't get a weekly paycheck or a monthly paycheck or some kind of steady income. You, you work hard for months and then you get a lump sum payoff at the end with the bounty or the harvest of the crop. And so there, there's this kind of idea of, of presiding over everything all at one time. And if you think about the original Thanksgiving and why we still celebrate Thanksgiving, is that, you know, finally they had broken through. People had come to Americas before and, and the whole, colon, whole colonies had died out because they hadn't been able to grow food. They hadn't been able to make it work. And now they have this bounty of food and they're coming together and they're saying thanks. And so it's this idea of kind of just this huge amount, huge payoff at one time that you're kind of seeing and presiding over. And then it says, um, it talks about spoil, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, when I generally think of spoil, I think of um, war and looting and plundering. And somebody, you know, to the victor go the spoils. Somebody has won and somebody has lost. And so if you, th you think of... Um, you know, it's often in school, you would study the Vikings who would come into these villages and kind of just take everything away from everybody and uh, sometimes even kill the people that live there. And so the, the word spoil may seem a little strange here, but there has been a victory. There has been a war. Jesus has conquered sin and death. So he hasn't exploited anyone to do this like normal spoil would be. 
He has killed the curse that's exploiting us. And so we get to share in that spoil of eternal rejoicing with him and celebrating the victory that he's brought. So verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now this is very heavy language. So when you think of a yoke, you think of a burden, you might picture like a horse or an oxen with a big piece of wood on it, either carrying a cart that has a heavy load or maybe dragging a plow. But there's, there's this idea of, um, of real intense, you know, work. And, um, and, and it's often associated in scripture with depression. And so we see here that the rod of the oppressors, so, you know, the one who would, um, who would oppress you, who would beat you, these things have been, have been broken. And again, it could connect back for the Israelites back to when they were in Egypt and they were being, um, they were being whipped and they were being beaten by the Egyptians because they were slaves. But God came through and he provided salvation for them and they were able to leave as a free people. And it's the same idea for here. And, and where it says, um, you are broken as on the day of Midian. Midian is, connects back to the story of Gideon, which is one of the clearest examples in all of the Bible of God displaying his sovereign hand over people and over history. So God sends the Israelites into battle against the Midianites. And Gideon is their leader. And he goes with 300 men. And the Midianites have 130,000 men. And he goes with trumpets and he goes with clay pots. And so on the surface, it seems like a suicide mission. I don't know a lot about military strategy, but I'm pretty sure two things are very important. One, you want to have more soldiers than the other side, if possible. And you want to have better weaponry. Gideon has neither. He goes with 300 against 130,000 with basically some seventh grade band instruments and some pottery. Okay, and he shows up and their battle plan is to break the pots and blow the trumpets. So this seems like basically, why don't you just kill yourself before they kill you? But God is telling him and he wants to build the faith of his people to show his power. So they show up, they break the pots, they blow the trumpets. God throws the Midianite army into mass confusion and 120,000 soldiers are dead. Um, by the time it's over, and none of the 300 have died. And so Israel wins this great victory over Midian, and it's clear that the only reason they won that victory is because God gave them that victory. They had nothing to do. They could take no credit for it. And so God's, again, communicating that message that he's going to bring peace. He's going to bring rest. He's going to bring an end to war, but he's going to do it. We're not going to be able to take any credit for it. Um, and so if you read verse 5, it says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. One of the clearest ways that you've achieved true peace is if people destroy their weapons. So this is not a ceasefire where basically everybody's just tired of the, of the bloodbath and they just need a reprieve. It's not a false treaty where both sides are signing, but they have no intention of honoring it. Okay, this is true. When you start destroying your weapons of war, that shows that you believe that true peace is coming. And this is not, um, you know, a distant where they're flying a plane over and dropping a bomb. You see the, the every garment rolled in blood. This implies intense hand-to-hand -hand 
combat where, where people are, you know, being killed. And so all of those things are going to be burned up and there's going to be no more need because there's this everlasting peace that is coming. And so um, Mackey in his commentary, I, I thought put it really good. I wanted to read it word for word. He said, this imagery is they're rejoicing is that the divine victory will inaugurate a time of peace from which the brutality and horrors of war will be banished. They won't even be possible anymore, which is, which is a true everlasting peace as we're all seeking peace and security. So now I want to move into verse 6, which is really kind of the crescendo of the whole thing. Um, and probably a verse that you've heard, whether you believe in Jesus or not. Um, but, I'm going to read it in two pieces. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. And we're going to get to the four names in a minute, but I want to start first with the first part of the verse. So birth always brings hope. Um, even if you're cynical, there's something about holding a new baby um, where you, you, know, you just can't help but appreciate um, you know, the miracle of life. And so birth brings with it this idea of hope or this idea of starting over or getting a fresh start where you can move on and not have to worry about past mistakes. And so for unto us a child is born, there's this idea of, of hope springing new and kind of, you know, whatever's happened in the past, it's going to be better going forward. And then it says, to us a son is given. And that word given is really important. God did not have to do what he did. He was not under compulsion. He was not under contract. No one, was holding, no one was holding his feet to the fire, forcing him to do this. It was of his own volition. It was of his own choosing, his own desire, that he decided to leave the sovereign throne of heaven to come be humbled as a man, be born as a baby, and live a sinless life so that we could, so that we could achieve salvation through him. So we had no way to get there on our own but he provided a way. And he did it willingly, um, which I think is very important because he would have been fully justified and fully righteous to pour out his wrath on all of us. It's real. And he would have been righteous to, to have just condemned us all. He didn't have to offer a way of salvation, but he wanted to. And we'll see later in verse seven. It's because of his zeal. And then Jesus being born, the government shall be upon his shoulders um, that imp implies several things. One, that he's going to be the ruler. And we see that over in verse 7 where it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So this, this um, affirms, his his, it affirms his royalty. He is the divine royal savior. He is the king, okay? Um, so it's not just an ordinary boat, birth. And the government's supposed to protect its people and provide for its welfare Again, a lot of times we see the opposite of that happen. We see exploitation. Um, but this Savior is going to be different. And, and we're going to see he's going to have four names that let us know that he's different. So the first is um, Wonderful Counselor. And when you first read those four names, to me, that one seems the most out of place. Because I don't think necessarily of a, of a mighty, um, strong ruler as being a wise counselor. I, 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 when I hear the word counselor, I think more of like walking into somebody's office where it's quiet and have a couch for you to lay down, something like that. But there's an example in Scripture that I think drives home this point where wise, wonderful counsel brings peace. 
So Solomon um, was the third king of Israel, and he had something that happened to him that's never happened to any other person. God came to Solomon, and he said, I will give you anything that you want, okay? Um, now think about that. That's a, that's a, there are a lot of things you could ask for. Well, Solomon asked for wisdom. So he was granted this extra measure of divine wisdom. Now he was still a man. He was still sinful. He was still living under the curse of sin. So he wasn't perfect, but he was granted this extra sense of divine wisdom. And then when you read in 1 Kings 3, there's a story of two women who come to Solomon. And they've each had babies around the same time. One of the babies has died. In the middle of the night, the, the, the um, mom whose baby died switched her baby with the other mom. And when they wake up, the mom whose baby is still alive now has the dead baby looks and says, this is not my baby. So they're in front of Solomon, and they're arguing back and forth. The live baby's mine. The live baby's mine. Well, he can't see into their hearts, so he doesn't know ultimately who's telling the truth. So what he says is, he says, he says, bring a sword and cut the baby in half, and they can each have half. Well, the real mom speaks up at that point and says, look, I'd rather the baby stay alive with her than be killed. And the other mom says, that's a good plan. Let's split them in half. So Solomon knows the real mom is the one who wants the life of the child preserved. So he says, give the baby to her. And then there's this kind of sense of awe that goes out over Israel that, you know, that he's extremely wise. And as you read on in 1 Kings um, 4.20, it says, Judah and Israel, this is under his, his um, rule. Basically, if you read in kind of the context, the result of his rule is that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. So you see this idea of multiplication, wealth again. They ate and drank and were happy. And so there's this idea of peace. And if you read of kings before Solomon and after Solomon, there's a lot of war. Solomon's dad, David, was known as this mighty warrior. He killed hundreds, maybe even thousands of people throughout his career as a soldier and then as, as a king. But Solomon gets this extended period of peace under his reign. Um, and he's reigning very wisely and very shrewdly. So other people even come to see Solomon. And queen, the queen of Sheba, who rules another country that's influential in that time, she comes just to sit and listen to him. And she talks about how his wisdom and the wealth of Israel, she'd heard all this hype about how great it was, but it wasn't even half as good as what she had heard. And you think about things in life, it's pretty rare that when something's really hyped up, that it delivers more than double what you think. So um, if you have a pulse, you probably know that Star Wars opened on Friday. And they have been hyping this thing for months, right? And so if it really stinks, it's going to be bad. Um, I haven't seen it. I don't know if it's good or bad. But it's one of those things that most of the time in life when something's really hyped, it doesn't always live up to it. But um, God's wisdom. So if you think about that of an ordinary man still living under the curse of sin and everybody being amazed at his wisdom, how much more in, increase of joy and peace will we have living under God's perfect wisdom who created wisdom, who created us um, without sin. The next one seems like a more natural fit, mighty God. So it implies this immense strength and power, this fierce warrior. And if you've ever met anyone who's enormous, there's this kind of sense of, you know, where you may not say anything or just kind of like, whoa, you know, the sense of kind of awe. And so um, one time I met Lou Ferrigno, who is a mountain. He's huge. He's 6'5". 
His muscles are incredibly big. Um, so, I mean, kind of picture me, but a little bigger. And um, so, a little bigger, not a lot, just a little. Um, I mean, when he had a tank top on, and when he scratched his head, it was, like, it was like a rabbit was like, I don't know, coming out of his muscles, huge. And so, when I saw him, I just kind of stared at him. And, and, uh, and other people were around, and I went up and I introduced myself, and uh, he must have noticed, because he said, he doesn't even say, I say, hi, my name's Hunter. He says, you were staring at me. That's all he says. It's like one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. And, and uh, I'm, I was like, yeah, I am. You're huge, you know? And uh, so anyway, um, the rest of the, I mean, it was a train wreck after that. You can't recover from something like that. <laughs> but we see this idea in scripture. And so there are lots of people falling down before God and, and angels. And so John, who wrote the book of Revelation, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples in John 1.17 I mean, Revelation 117, when, she, when he sees Jesus, when he's taken up to heaven and he sees Jesus, he falls down as a dead man. And it's this sense of, of dread and awe. And not dread of in a, like you're in the principal's office and you did something bad, but this dread of he is powerful and he is righteous and, and I am not. And so um, there's, there's this idea that no one will even challenge him. In Matthew, after Jesus raised from the dead, um, he comes out of the tomb, and the guards that are guarding the tomb, they fall down as if they're dead. They faint. Now, Roman guards, the Roman army was fierce. They were the fiercest warriors the world had ever seen up until that time. I mean, they were, they were the Navy SEALs of their day, and they had virtually conquered the whole world. So when these men, who had probably seen a lot of nasty things through their times and battles, as Roman soldiers, as guards, when they fall down dead, these are not the security guards at the mall, okay? These guys, they, they are bad warriors. And so, but there's this sense, it says, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And, the, and for fear of him, meaning Jesus, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And Isaiah is the same way. If you read in Isaiah 6, he talks, when he goes into heaven, he sees and he realizes how sinful he is and how sinful the people are. And he just says, woe is me. And, and um, when the people are delivered out of slavery from Egypt, the, the Israelites, Moses is talking to God directly. And God is so glorious that just Moses talking to God makes his face shiny. And so he comes out and his face is shiny and it freaks everybody out. It freaks them out so much that they say, look, we can't take it. When you go talk to God, when you, before you come out, put a blanket over you, and then we'll talk to you. And so there's this idea of just, you cannot even challenge God or understand how powerful or mighty he is. And so the next one connects well, everlasting father. So he is this, this immense, strong warrior, but he's also, you get this image of a daddy. Um, and there's two things here. One is that he never dies which is a foreign abstract concept to us because everyone, will, everyone will die. We'll all need a will at some point. Um, countries, you know, if you read through history, there have been a lot of countries that have, that have risen and fallen. Um, nothing in this life lasts forever. But God does. He created the universe. He existed before creation. He will exist after Jesus comes back the second time. And we will get to exist with him forever. And I think this is really comforting because I'm a daddy. I have two little girls. And sometimes I think about what would happen if, if something happened to me. 
And I trust God's plan is best. Um, but we never have to have any of those concerns with him. He, he will always be there for us. He is incapable of death or decaying or getting old or fading. Um, and then the father idea implies this idea of affection. And so um, when you think about um, be, me being a daddy, I love to, you know, give my girls a hug when I come home. I love to, to cuddle with them, um, you know, to, to just be affectionate with them. And, and we can be affectionate with God. And, and, and that's this idea here, this, this mighty, strong God who no one can challenge but yet he invites us into his lap. He invites us to be affectionate with him, and he gives us affection. In fact, he gives us affection when we were rejecting him. He came, to, he came and humbled himself so that we could be adoption, adopted as his sons. Prince of peace. Now, any ruler who can't bring peace isn't worth much because basically we're all seeking after peace and security. And so... Um, you know, a ruler who came in and um, brought strife and war, there's not much to rejoice in there. But he is going to come and he's going to bring eternal peace. As we saw in verse 5, so much peace that war will be banished. We won't even need weapons of war. And this is a chronic problem. I mean, I think there's a common grace among all mankind where we recognize the desire for world peace. So every year, economists, sociologists, historians, psychologists, and others write books on how to achieve world peace. There are summits and conferences you can attend on how to achieve peace in certain areas. I mean, even beauty pageants, they want world peace when you ask them if they could have one thing. So there's this common idea that we need world peace, and yet very little seems to change. So we still have areas like Syria and Sudan um, and Somalia and other places where there are, there's a lot of striving, and there's a lot of, um, you know, horror, horrible acts of war. And so he's going to come, and he's going to settle all of that. And we're going to be able to live with him in a peace that never ends. And we're going to be able to, to understand and, and praise him without the stain and the curse of sin. So I want to read verse 7. Um, which kind of ties it all together. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. Um, I'm going to mainly read it, but it's the result of the six verses. And so you'll see this idea of this eternal increasing peace with no end. So it's eternal in that it doesn't end, but it's also eternal in that it, it increasing in that it continues to get better and better and better. The longer we are in heaven and with him, the more excitement and joy and peace we're going to feel. It's, it's not necessarily the steady state. It's going to increase for eternity, which again is a hard, it's an abstract concept that's hard to understand. Um, there's going to be justice and righteousness. Again, um, any, living under any ruler with injustice and, or who is unrighteous, um, there's nothing to rejoice in there. That, that brings fear and anguish. This is going to bring... Um, peace. And then finally, zeal. And zeal means passionate pursuit or enthusiasm. God didn't do it under compulsion. He didn't even do it because, you know, he felt mediocre about it. It was passionate pursuit or this enthusiasm. He wanted to, because of his great glory, reach down and save us, offer us salvation, humble himself to become a man, 
to conquer sin and death. Not because we were lovely. We were rejecting him all the way through it. Yet he was still enthusiastic and passionate about doing it. So let's read and be encouraged. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this text. I thank you for salvation. I thank you, Lord, for allowing us to understand how significant it was that you came and humbled yourself as, as God to become a baby so that you could live here on earth and set us free from sin by conquering death. And so I pray, Lord, these next four days that our hearts will spiral up with joy and that when Christmas morning comes that we'll be excited to open presents and to eat good food and to be with family and friends. But I pray, Lord, that the behind all of that, that a, that a deeper, more fulfilled source of joy will be our meditating and thinking about all that you've done for us. And so I pray, Father, that our hearts won't be dull, that Christmas won't be old hat, but that our hearts, Lord, will soar with joy, that they'll soar with hope, and that they'll soar with love and affection for you. In your name, amen.